Hello, folks, and welcome to our third episode of Think Bad, Do Good, our podcast here at Attack IQ. And today we are bringing back Ben Opal. Hello, Ben. Hey, Jonathan. Since he last was on the podcast, Ben has transitioned from the Marine Corps and joined Attack IQ full-time as Director for Customer Success, where he continues to lead Purple Teams, Purple Team Training. And uh, what else do you do, Ben? Well, I'm kind of picking it up as I go. Uh, one of my primary jobs is to advise customers on the use and oper- operationalization of the capability uh, to kind of take the operations experience I have and uh, help translate it over into corporate and help them use the product. Use the product. Yeah, which is awesome. So, to that end, I think today I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a lot of time talking to Ben, asking Ben about his experience running cyber protection teams within the Marine Corps and the lessons he learned about threat-informed defense and how they can apply to the to the broader world in the corporate sector and in the public sector. Um, how's that sound, Ben? Does that sound good? I like it. I dig it. Good. Sweet. This builds off a blog post that we did a couple of weeks ago about lessons from uh, our experiences working in the Pentagon and for the Department of Defense, Ben in the Marine Corps and me in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, and what we learned about threat-informed defense during that experience. And I'll just open with a brief comment about that on the basis of my understanding of history. And, you know, what happened after 9-11, after the intelligence failures leading up to 9-11, is the the military and the intelligence community built much tighter bonds between the intelligence folks and the operators. And we call this the intelligence operations link. Um, And in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq in particular, it just got much, much, much tighter. And it was driven in part by technology, but also this operational requirement to understand uh, the adversary, understand the battlefield, understand key terrain in, in foreign lands, which was really important. Um, it also was sort of coterminous of the evolution of counterinsurgency doctrine. And the net result is that a forward operating base would look like a command center of, of prior periods. It was much more technology and intelligence flowing in all the way back from from Langley and, and the United States downrange. And the, the analogous function in cyberspace is so cyberspace is even more intelligence dependent than perhaps in, in the physical world because the entire infrastructure is dependent on code. So if you are trying to defend yourself against an adversary in cyberspace, you need to understand, excuse me, the tools and the code that they are developing and what they're trying to do. So when Cyber Command stood up in the 2009-2010 timeframe under General Alexander, that was like the initial period of its investment. And there was a question as to whether NSA and Cyber Command should split. And that question has continued for a number of sort of institutional and operational reasons and political reasons, um, which are valid. But one of the main reasons why it hasn't happened is there's this tight benefit between the National Security Agency and the U.S. Cyber Command to, to um, for Cyber Command to rely on the intelligence generated by the intelligence community. And it's provided a great benefit. And General Paul Nakasone, who leads Cyber Command and is the director of the NSA, he said last year in open testimony that this, this nexus is incredibly valuable. And he used the example of the Russia small group, um, which brought the NSA and Cyber Command together to address what Russia would do in advance of the 2018 congressional elections. Um, and it provided NSA and the United States with a significant benefit to try and deter and, and then deny Russian activity. Um, so the the cyber mission force then has had to 
which is the 6,200 people that are within Cyber Command, they've had to grow their intelligence connections as well and their intelligence capabilities within the cyber protection teams, the combat mission teams, and the national mission teams. These are the three force components within this within the Defense Department. Um, so what I thought I would do is briefly reflect on on, on the sort of notion of threat-informed defense and have with that with that history as background and then pivot over to Ben. So MITRE... MITRE focuses on on three things when it talks about the threat-informed defense uh, methodology. The first thing is you have to know the adversary, right? You have to understand the adversary's capabilities and what they're trying to do. The second is you have to understand your key terrain and what and how you have to defend it. And then the third is you have to build this tight bond between teams in order to enable a threat-informed defense. And that's obviously what's happened in Cyber Command and at through with its um, relationship with NSA. Um, but Ben, in your experience running the running cyber protection teams and in the Marine Corps, um, how has this played out in your mind? Let's start with the first one, which is really understanding the adversary and, and threats. So the adversary focus part, I mean, that's really what the differentiator was. That's what we were trying to figure out um, as we created defensive cyber ops as a discipline in the DOD is what what's different about this capability we're making? Because, you know, we have these these three um, lines of operation in cyber. You got, you got OCO, you know, effects, offensive stuff, DCO, defensive stuff. And then you have DODNOPS, which is the infrastructure stuff. It's running everything. Um, and cybersecurity, as we understand it now, is a part of that DODNOPS thing. So, we're th- you know, a lot of people ask the question of what made it different. Um, DCO, that is. And the answer to that has always been that we are entirely adversary focused. Um, we, we turn everything around. And we look at it from that perspective and we approach uh, defensive missions from an adversary perspective. Um, so again, we, we were notionally, we were ostensibly threat informed from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. We were, we were built that way, right? We had in, built in intelligence teams, built in red teams so that we could actually understand and, uh, and act like the adversary when we were doing the job. Um, so, you know, developing and understanding the TTPs of the adversary was huge for us, uh, which is not to say we were all that great at it in the beginning. Uh, just like anybody else, we had to start up. Uh, mm-hmm. We had to start up, you know, understanding how to use IOCs, understanding how to use signatures, and then kind of starting to piece together TTPs. You know, we had a lot of help from agency, a lot of help from industry to do that. But again, we kind of made the same evolution uh, in the past 10 years that industry made in the past 20, because we had the benefit of their their failures and uh, successes and the backing of, you know, agency intelligence. So <clears throat> our, we, we were meaning to do this from the beginning, um, you know, to be threat informed. We didn't have a name for it. We didn't know it was, you know, this threat informed defense concept. We didn't know it was, uh, you know, purple teaming, which is, which is a thing these days. Um, but yeah, that was the, that was the whole point of it. Um, and what we started to realize later, uh, as we got better at the intel side of it, was operationalizing the intel, uh, and, and not just by you know understanding TTPs, but more by actually acting like the adversary using those built in red teams, which was its own set of problems. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that. That's how we've developed it. And you've said before, and I, I've I've heard before, and then I've asked you that the cyber protection teams are the, sort of the most adversary focused in a lot of ways. Well, the national mission teams, and then the cyber protection teams, and potentially the cyber protection teams within the national mission force are the most adversary focused. Does that comport with your with your view, or maybe I have it wrong? Absolutely. Um, there there was some very specific threat alignment going on uh, in terms of making certain teams. Uh, duty experts on defending against and emulating certain adversaries. So we were very specific about it, you know, to the exclusion of all else, some teams were only looking at one threat. 
mm-hmm. and we saw the benefits of it you know during that time uh, with the uh, attack against the joint staff right yeah yeah so my my understanding in this is that um, uh, when um, I believe it was the Russian government penetrated the joint staff networks the cyber protection teams of the national mission force were the were the, really the key enablers to booting them off and they could turn and they understood the adversary they understood the te- tactics techniques and procedures and they could quickly find them and remove them from the network and it was a great example in the evolution of of that doctrine um so the second thing that miter talks about in the threat informed defense narrative again is this understanding your data and what you're trying to defend and that really resonated with me so you know we disaggregated uh, the way we w- went about thinking about um, the defending key terrain is we started with like the key operational plans like, and capabilities like nuclear command and control and then ballistic missile defense and then like key regional plans. And then we basically said we're going to task different components of the defense department to defend data um, to assure the, that those missions can succeed. And I sort of I had like I talked to the mission assurance department in the office of the secretary of defense in the Pentagon in D.C. I was like, yeah, this seems to make sense. And I talked to PACOM. PACOM and I like ran like an initial assessment about it. Actually, we did one with CENTCOM where we looked at like key terrain across the Persian Gulf in the event of a contingency. So it was like it wasn't entirely not theoretically informed, but as a non-operator, I had to sort of absorb data from people to be like, is this the right approach? And I'm curious from your side, how you were going about the work as somebody leading CPTs. Well, you know, the DOD lingo for kind of that top level outcome is a met, you know, as far as, you know, outside of the, the high strategic stuff, nuclear command and control that, you know, the mission essential task. Uh, and that's kind of what we meant it out of, you know, in the business world, this is, this is a business outcome. This is an OKR, things like that. Um, and it was just a matter of decomposing it. I mean, it was, uh, one of the simpler, if not easier, you know, not not easier, but simpler kind of processes we had for analysis. Now, the Air Force, of course, they made it very complex to put a bunch of math into it. You know, functional mission analysis, cyber, which was they can have it. I'm a Marine. We eat crowns for lunch. Um, but, uh, you know, you think, you think a mission essential task like, you know, this this unit has to be able to deliver precision fires over long distance, what, something like that. And we just we could we decompose it into, you know, what are the processes that actually um, the fires processes in that case that enable them to do that, that what, what, what are, you know, what are people doing to actually accomplish the mission? And so then, you know, out of the process, we break it down into, you know, what are the actual data, the, um, the capabilities, you know, be they data systems, apps, whatever it is, you know, the, that allow that process to run. And out of, out of those capabilities comes, you know, the, the hosts, the physical assets, um, servers, whatever, physical virtual doesn't matter. Uh, that again, that those capabilities run on, and you decompose that again into the infrastructure chains that kind of support everything and make it go. Uh, and that's again, it, it's it sounds a lot like crown jewels analysis, which is very much what it reflects. Um, but it's just yeah. kind of got our, that got that DoD spin on it. And that's how we started to do it. You know, it's a it, it's a place it's a place to start analysis, start understanding things. You know, it, it kind of resembles some of these threat modeling methodologies out there, uh, like uh, Pasta, Octave, all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Except we didn't do it quite to that depth. The Air Force did, not us. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that, that's how we did it, right? That's how, because we had too few people to get after this massive. Yeah, how long did it take? Enterprise. How long would it take to, to assure a Met mission essential task? Depends on the Met. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair point. one thing yeah. I like say is it's yeah, mission, yeah. It's mission you, know, you know, situationally dependent. But um, to actually, you know, do the analysis and understand what it is that we wanted to defend first in priority order and mm-hmm. how we would do it. Anyway, that's a, that takes a couple of weeks at least to do it right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's assuming that we had full, co- full cooperation from the supported element. 
Um, and does that then include yeah. like depo- deploying defensive technologies and people against the assets when, when yes. you say a couple of weeks? Hmm. All part of the process, yeah. right? You know, because you have to map out and understand what's going on in this in this architecture, and you have to see how you're going to actually connect in our te- our technologies, and our defense technologies, into this architecture and do it safely. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I personally worked on a network that uh, was a no kidding. 24-7 must work, life and limb are on the line network. So we were very careful about how we did it. Uh, in some other cases, you don't have to be quite so painstaking. Interesting. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, and so the, what are some lessons you would, you would offer to the, to the corporate world? Um, I mean, obviously, like, crown jewel analysis is a thing, and zero trust is a thing, but stemming from your particularly unique experience running CPTs for these life, life and death networks, what are some of the biggest lessons you, you learned from it? Well, one was establishing the right relationships across the enterprise with the people who actually own the technologies uh, that you're supposed to defend, the ones that are so important, um, that they're so important that they have to stay up and they have to keep running right. Um, yeah, this is the third also, point in the MITRE. This is the third point in the MITRE thing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and also, I'll, I'll leave that. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, but what I'll say is that as you're doing this analysis, I mean, it's, it's kind of a continuous threat modeling thing. You know, the threat modeling and security testing are these programs, uh, or they should be programs, not the kind of projects that we've made them into, uh, because you know Mets don't change that fast. Uh, once a Met is established, it, it's the result of a whole lot of analysis, and it's based on DoD strategy and acquisition, and so and those things change slowly because they're based on this plan of how the U.S. is going to posture itself against the world. Um, so you got the Mets that don't change, but everything below it, everything that enables the Met is always changing. The technology is changing, the TTPs are changing, the processes, procedures, and people are changing. Um, and so the the model, how, how you've modeled the threats you mean to they're, they're changing, changes. You're, they're changing to achieve real military effects in the real world. Is that what you right. mean? Well, they're changing with the, with, with the evolution of technology and the changing of the threat landscape and the, the, the changes to the actual, the political landscape, right? You know, it's the Met is the duck, all right? And everything that enables the Met are the duck's feet. The duck is, you know, it's very, very calm. The feet are just going crazy. So we have to, so, so I mean, the best way I can say it, that's the best way I can say it, right? Because everything below the surface of this Met um, has to evolve. And so as security professionals, as defenders or, or, you know, or friendly attackers, um, we have to be continually reassessing that. And so, you know, making, making, uh, making what you do is making threat modeling uh, and uh, security testing a programmatic requirement throughout your organization is something that, that we discovered was very important. Because our threat models are always being updated. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, like the path from you know from entry to impact on mission was changing continuously. If I were to break it down that way, yeah, we totally. had to live that path. Yep. The way I the, the way I held these things in my head when I was working on the strategy, which now is five years ago, so that's like practically ancient history, right? Um, it was like we had the key terrain. You had to you know do the process that you just outlined which is fascinating and like super important do the key terrain analysis and assign people. But then you also have to prepare for failure. It's like, let's just like, we, we, we think we see everything that's going on, but you always, you can't always anticipate certain kinds of threats. So things could break. And so you also had to build in this element of resilience and, and Admiral Rogers, I love this line he, he had. He was like in the eighties when he was commanding submarines, they had to prepare for um, electromagnetic pulses, which would just disrupt all communication. So the ultimate fallback for cybersecurity, which is a, somewhat orthogonal to our like our conversation here because it's not necessarily a threat-informed defense. Well, maybe it's like the maximum definition of threat-informed defense is like be ready for everything to, to break and fly blind. And I always well, thought yeah. like yeah. the military is really well prepared to do that in a lot of ways. Well, I'd say we're, 
uh, a very wise man told me that as a comm officer, you should never plan to fail. However often comm fails, um, you know, don't plan to fail, plan to succeed in the worst possible circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what this, it, this kind of almost fell out of that, that notion that everything's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. What are you doing about it? Yeah. Which really begins with like a threat informed defense capability and miter attack. It's like, we know there are known threats. We know that these tactic techniques and procedures are out there and they're, and they're going to be deployed against you. So let's, let's pivot to the, let's pivot to the third point. And if your dog wants to join the podcast, he or she is invited anytime. Such a well-insulated house. Sound does travel. Yeah. We have good microphones. So the, the third part was um, have really close relationships across teams to enable a threat informed defense. And that I think they were really thinking between like the threat intelligence capability and the defenders in particular. Um, But what, what's, what are some experiences in that, in that realm? on your side. Wow. Uh, okay. So one of the things of the many things DOD does not do quite well enough. One of the things we do great is training, right? Cause we understand this need for shared adversity, uh, and growth in teams that are going to have to function very well together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the first thing I'll say is, you know, building type bonds between teams is a matter of training them together and training them hard. Uh, people don't get better when you treat them with kid gloves. doesn't matter if you're wearing a uniform or not. Um, so what I'd say is, you know, and you, and you mentioned that idea of, you know, the Intel interacting with defenders. I think it's, it's, it's more important that we have Intel defense operations and red working together at all times. Uh, the, 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 that relationship is absolutely critical. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, in the kind of the first point, um, we had red, we weren't allowed to use them necessarily the way that we should have been. Uh, I think that's getting better now. I'm not sure. Um, I don't wear the uniform anymore. That said, uh, if you don't have them working together, you're not getting the full benefits of this highly trained and highly specialized workforce. Okay. Um, because if, if your blue team is not being tested, they're flying blind. And if your red team is not going up against a highly a prepared defender, they're not improving and they're only really achieving their own objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you make them train together, they're, no, they're improving each other is the Marine Corps. We like to say steel sharpens steel, which I'm not sure how accurate that is, but we'll go with it. Um, <laughs> I'm allowed to say this now, right? You don't have a degree in metallurgy, man. Come on. They didn't like teach you metallurgical <laughs> manufacturing in the core. <laughs> uh, well, at the academy, they, they tried. Uh, but, you know, thermodynamics wasn't exactly my best course. Yes. Yeah. The closest thing we had. We're not a school of mines, as cool as that is. But <laughs> anyways, so training together is the thing you got to do. Right. And, mm-hmm. it, and, and whether you, just, you, need, you need something red to do that, right? Because everybody's got a blue team of some sort. It might be like that one guy in IT who kind of knows about, you know, forensics, who's your blue team, or it might be an entire SOC. Um, if you're not testing them, you're probably not doing it right. And if you, and if you think you can't test them, that's not necessarily accurate, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff out there. You can, use. Like you can get something ready. You don't have to have a red team or a pen testing mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you can't employ that capability, be it like be it a commercial or open source BAS, be it an automated pen testing tool, you know, something like Atomic Red Team or something breach like that. Breach and attack simulation. Breach, BAS, yeah, or yeah. breach and attack, sorry, BAS, breach and yeah. attack simulation tool. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't have those, th- if you have those things, you're not being allowed to use them, you can still use them to inform your processes. You can use them to, you can use them to train machine learning models. You can use them to just test your processes and people and see how they react to stuff, you know, in, in a non-production way. And should we test in production? Of course. But um that's, I think that's the whole point, right? We have to introduce hardship. We have to introduce adversity to these teams and give them, make sure give them something close to a realistic look and make them do these things together. Yeah. Yep. That's right. One of the, I mean, one of the things I love about Attack IQ is that you can test in production safely and at scale, which is awesome. Um, 
and uh, and and the idea of augmenting a red team through an automated capability that deploys MITRE attack techniques against your enterprise gives everyone this sort of central baseline understanding and and surfaces all this data about how the team performs against against capabilities against adversary capabilities and if you don't do it then you're just you're just sort of doing whack-a-mole trying to meet standards and you're not really focused on on maximizing well, yeah. outcomes and the MITRE attack piece I mean that really gets after one of the big problems that stands in the way of good interaction, these kind of, you know, building type bonds between teams. The biggest issue with that, you know, aside from kind of a cultural issue, which can be solved, but it's a, it's a matter of being able to communicate, which is a means to solving the cultural issues, right? It's, it's being able to, for red, blue, and operations types to be able to talk to each other. It's, it's for security teams and IT teams to be able to communicate better up uh, up the chain and laterally. Mm -hmm. uh, and MITRE ATT&CK is, is, is a way that has kind of started to simplify that, at least within the technical realm. You have this common lexicon, you know, this this basic understanding, this foundation, like foundational understanding of what an attack is and what they look like, and, and we can describe them with these building blocks that are, you know, at the very, you know, at least, you know, eighty to seventy five percent accurate all the time. You know, it, there's always stuff's always evolving. Don't get me wrong, but you can say, yeah, it's that technique. It's it's T ten ninety six, but it's a it's a variation on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, being yeah. able to communicate that way was really important because we, if we if we can decompose complex kill chains into something that allows us to align capability defense capabilities against them and describe why we need investment in a certain detection you know capability and a certain tool or appliance, we start to win more because people understand what we're doing and we're able to demonstrate more that as defenders we care about the things they care about. Hey, we care about risk, right? Because this money that we want you to spend on this uh, aligns to this set of risks that we have analyzed to be resultant from these techniques that we can defend against if you spend this money, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. the kind of place we're trying to go. And that's what something like MITRE ATT&CK helps with. That's it's awesome. It's a collaboration piece, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, and then and the ultimately, like, you could use it for exercising, right? And you could use it for exercising for a number of different exigent circumstances. You could say, I'm going to prepare for an advance. If you're a state right now, for example, you could use the MITRE ATT&CK framework and an automated capability to prepare for Russian manipulations of the of your electoral systems, Russian government manipulations of your electoral systems. That's something easy. Um, there's all these different applications that you can use when you when you deploy these capabilities against your your defense systems. One of the ones that I recently learned about, which I think is just so cool, is training machine learning and artificial intelligence capabilities to learn how to defend themselves and how to reconfigure themselves against threats. So it's like if you can actually train the machines to behave a certain way against threats, then you can improve your your internal behavior for 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 them. Now I don't I don't actually know of like specific cases when that's happened. I know that they're out there, but I just think that's really cool. Right? Like it's kind of future focused. Yep. And I, the really cool part is that you, you can just create a training base for, you know, a machine learning algorithm out of something like a commercial BAS or, or our open source or any kind of automated pen testing program. Uh, you can just throw it at it in a test environment and then you know, take that good, um, that data set, that learned uh, behavior out into production. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's really neat. I hope, I hope everyone who's tuned in has benefited as much as I have from talking to Ben. Every time I talk to him, it's like, uh, I feel like my brain expands one thing we should we should maybe do next time because we're already at like 20 minutes now is um talk about future tech and things that keep you up at night actually you know what why don't we just talk about that right now since i already asked you what are some things that keep you up at night from a future technology standpoint what do you think the future holds what's the things that we can't the things that we can't stop or the things that we have on there you know that are their own countermeasure right you know things like ai like quantum you know, everyone, everyone talks about those things, right? I don't, I, I'm not going to claim I understand how a quantum computer works um, or that I can create a functioning, you know, sapient AI. Um, but 
those are the things that you know shouldn't necessarily keep us up at night anymore because we know that the only reaction the, the only the only worthwhile thing to do in response to them is come up with our own and mm-hmm. so the, the the things that bother me the most um, aside from those those watershed technologies are stuff like the fact that we can't answer the question of how much we're willing to automate right you know i mean you, you, what, you, what we saw happening in, de- in defense you know is back you know 15 years ago uh we we were manually doing uh p- piecing through logs and doing trying to correlate things with you know hack together scripts and stuff like that you um, did that in the that, academy i mean i did i was yeah. a teenager but like in, in in industry right that's what we were mm-hmm. doing we, we we didn't have this breadth and depth of automated uh, correlation and detection response capabilities. And I wouldn't say response so much, but correlation detection type stuff uh, that we do now. Um, so we've, we, we've allowed ourselves to automate more of the uh, of the thought, the thinking behind defense, right? Um, I think we need to take the next step on that, right? Because are we willing to automate something like pen testing, like in a, in a very meaningful, broad enterprise scale way uh, in order to actually meaningfully test the secure, our security, right? Because, you know, red teams, I love red teams, um, you know, but my opinion on the red team is, you know, the red team is dead. Long live the red team because we're not using them properly. And we'll only be able to use them properly if we start to automate away some of the pen test puppy mill stuff that they've been doing for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, we have to take away all of the gr- some of the grunt work that goes into every pen test. And I'm not talking about the planning or the customer interaction. That's all very, that, that's never going away. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about the stuff that you can feasibly automate away, like certain elements of recon. Uh, you know, throughout throughout your your attack, you know, it, no matter which uh, which endpoint you're on, you know, it's figuring out where to go next and doing some doing the enumeration, doing the discovery, doing the collection. A lot of those things can be done in an automated fashion. Uh, you know, if we were to, if we were to take that burden off of them uh, and actually let meat space brain people think 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 critically in a way that only people can do, and actually innovate and find ways around and through the very best defended systems, that's what's going to take us up to the next level, right? Because we we have to use the resources we have far better because adversaries are scaling way faster than we are, right? That's just mm-hmm. how it is. Yeah. Um, how do we, so are we willing to automate our own security testing at, this, at, a, at a worthwhile scale? And that's the kind of question that bugs me because the answer has always been no. Um, are we, and, and, then, and once we're able to do that, like what, what degree of remediation are we willing to automate? What are we willing to let a computer make decisions on? Because like before we even get to AI, we have to have these questions answered if we're going to use it in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what bugs me, to be frank. Yeah. It's, it's, I love the implications of this from a workforce standpoint. Because ultimately, like, cybersecurity capabilities are enabled by people's brains, right? That's like the, this is the biggest demand on, on, on resources within an organization. And what you're talking about here, and what we've heard also from Kurt Ayabayolu in the last time we did a pod, this podcast, was... Um, you can actually put like, let's, let's say like bachelor's or associate degree trained people on certain elements of managing a, an automated platform, like junior guys, right? Junior, you know, ladies and gentlemen, put them on, on these tasks to, to deploy capabilities. And then you can have the more advanced folks that have been in the, in, in the field for eight, 10 years to focus on like high end niche capabilities and prepare and like do open API trained, develop niche capabilities, test them against the assets that matter most and say, how are we performing? And that, that really is like a significant force multiplication capability. It's like, and you can save money and time. It's awesome. No no joke. K10 is a very smart guy. uh, And I have to agree completely with that because what we're allowing, uh, we're allowing ourselves to develop the actual capability sets that we have to have to uh, properly employ 
all this great technology we have right now. Like you talked about, you know, hey, we have somebody who's smart enough, who understands tools, who understands IT, who understands defense and attack at a, at a good found fundamental level and letting them run this stuff. What we need are people who are thinking about how to do, you know, about, about what the next thing is going to be thinking hard about how to break this stuff. Right. Thinking about, think about how to break the process, think about how to break the technology. I think that's really what we need to let people do. You know, you have to, you have to let people be red. You know, that's a term that I like to use. You know, the mm -hmm. best red teamers and pen testers I've ever met, they have a way of looking at everything that's very, it's deconstructive. You know, they're, they're, they're sneaky, they're subversive, they're laterally thinking. And, you know, a lot of times that's a natural thing, but you can develop that mindset in people if you let them really think hard about problems and give them the time uh, and education to do it. And I think that's kind I of think, one of those things yeah. we can get after with what you're saying. I think you may have just described yourself sneaky and subversive and lateral thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of. I did get this job somehow, which is amazing. <laughs> I think we can all vouch that uh, it's great to have you in this job. Um, obviously, I could talk to Ben for hours. I have talked to Ben for hours, and we will talk to Ben for more hours in the future um, about all of his experience and thinking. Thank you for taking a minute more on the future future focus tech. I liked your point very much on automation. Um, oh, thanks. I appreciate coming on, man. Yeah, it's awesome. Good. Okay, folks, we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Um, we're doing this now like once every ten days or something. Maybe we'll maybe we'll increase the pace. Um, but if you want to come on, shoot me a note, Jonathan.Riber at attackiq.com. Um, don't abuse that email. I do. I will block you. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.